Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from our coverage of Nash Tag 2023, plus the discussion that Jorn Schottenberg, Histoin X Chief Scientific Officer, Dean Tai, and I held about Histoin Zonal Analysis of Fibrosis, which you can find as part of Episode 2 for Season 4. This conversation is just between Donna Carrier and me. Donna notes that the data she has seen is cause for enthusiasm, but expresses concern that just having good data does not make approval inevitable without a disciplined application of what she calls regulatory science. Donna describes good regulatory science by saying, if we hit our endpoints, the drug should be approved. As she notes, Intercept hit its endpoints for butacolic acid in 2020, yet it was not approved at that time. As she describes it, good regulatory science is conclusive, granular, and has simplified message. I asked for an example of what might not be good regulatory science, and Donna noted that in the fireside chat, although titled regulatory, people focused more on clinical trial designs than how we were preparing for advisory committees, health technology assessments, and phase four trials, all of which will be pivotal to long-term success of drugs. I note that many of the panelists only talk to regulatory about trial design, not approval per se, and that FDA, in fact, regulatory process is a little bit like an elephant. What you think it is depends on where you touch it. Donna said that one of the best questions asked in that session was how equipoise will change once drugs are approved. Because what FDA is currently seeking in phase four trials of five to seven years becomes completely unrealistic once we have approved drugs on the market. At that point, I went back to Scott Friedman's comment about the straitjacket of biopsy and how that affects how we think about trial design and proof. Donna notes that real-world evidence is the up-to-date approach these days, and we will have it once we have more experience with medicines in the market. At this point, I return once more to the adiponectin analysis, predicting non-response as being my favorite part of the meeting, and explain why. Donna notes that one of her favorite moments came with Dr. Claude Serland, who's a radiologist, asked how radiologists can become more involved in fatty liver disease. I suggest that radiology may succeed biopsy as a hard standard of efficacy, something you can see at least and, and get a picture of. As the conversation winds down, Donna discusses some of the presented data and questions that suggest a public health perspective is present among those at the meeting. NASHTAC 2023 was a watershed moment for fatty liver disease, the place where exciting drug development readouts, powerful academic work on non-invasive tests, and the willingness to dive into the toughest questions align in a meeting that Scott Friedman described as being like drinking out of a fire hose. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, ponder, listen again if you need to. And when you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. What were the sources of optimism that grabbed you most positively or strongly? Donna Cryer. So I too share a lot of optimism. Having good data, good results from the clinical side is the first step. However, I have a concern that doesn't seem to be as widely shared as I would like it to be. That does not make an approval inevitable. So what kept going through my mind as I left the meeting and even as I listened to some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, hope is not a strategy. And so optimism is not inevitability. So there is a lot of work that still needs to be done in regulatory science. I hope to familiarize this community with that needs as much intention and invention and investment of time and resources as the clinical science if we are going to yield the benefit of all the hard work on the research side when we really need to focus on our assignment this year on the regulatory side. And I don't think that everybody got there with me. So first of all, I'm laughing because the first time this podcast tried to tackle regulatory science was on the Intercept CRL back in 2020. And um, a good friend of mine who will go on name but might be part of this interview recommended a regulatory 
regulatory consultant to come on the podcast with us who made a statement that turned out in hindsight not to have been right and caused a whole bunch of fuss and feathers for a long time beyond virtually getting Stephen yelling at the guy on the podcast. So I know what bad regulatory science is. Now let's talk about what good regulatory science means in 2022. Let's just start with what's good regulatory science. Good regulatory science and a good relationship between community and regulators are when you hit endpoints that you have agreed upon, then the drug is approved. We didn't have that. And so when I hear conversations around, you know, well, we think FDA or we're encouraged by FDA or they said that if they present us with reasonable data, then that just means, you know, we're all good. And I was like, well, how'd that work out for you last time? And so I will believe it when I see it. I believe that we need to have be persistent and consistent in our conversations with FDA. I think they need to be granular. I think they need to be uh, starting to be more conclusive. On our side, we need to be simplifying our message. All the wonderful nuance and caveats that we know and hold in our heads as as the field is evolving will only cause chaos and confusion when we come to an ad So we need to start switching our mindsets or recognizing when we need to be presenting information for different use cases and context. And certainly the questions and many of the issues that were raised in our fireside chat did not demonstrate to me that there was an understanding of when we needed to change contexts. So first of all, I'm going to note that good science by its nature is skeptical. So one of the things that you are being, in fact, is a little more skeptical than some of what we've heard. That might not be the sense in which you meant good regulatory science, but it is one of the things I'm picking up immediately. Second, can you give me one example, give our audience one example, lay out what was said and then talk about why you think that might not have been good science, good regulatory science? Well, I was having a conversation or tried to have a conversation about what we need to prepare to go up to approval. What would I was expecting going into a regulatory fireside chat to be discussing regulatory issues. And the conversation kept turning to, should we do clinical trials in this? And and should we do? And, and there was more on the research and development side versus the regulatory and approval side. And so it's as if I was in the wrong room or was present for the wrong discussion, or they were one of the two, because what I was prepared to speak on in terms of how we needed to communicate with the Food and Drug Administration, how we needed to make sure that we were prepared for health technology assessments, which would come right on its tailcoats. Also, how we needed to look forward to phase four, even given the lights of legislation that was passed in the last Congress about diversity requirements, for example. And so I was wanting to have a regulatory conversation as the only JD um, sort of snuck up on the panel, I guess. And they were still having clinical trial design conversations. And I don't believe they understood the difference. A couple thoughts about that. First of all, the regulatory structure might be seen as a bit like an elephant, right? What it feels like depends on where you touch it. Right. You weren't only the only JD on the panel. You were also the only person on the panel who had worked in FDA from the inside out. Yes. I I think to some degree, Amy, by dint of being in a company that's gotten a lot of stuff approved already, understood a lot of that. 
Scott understood a little bit of it, but he's still trying to figure out what do you have to pitch to the FDA to, to get your phase three accepted, et cetera. And virtually everyone else on that panel touches the FDA through the perspective of what is a good trial, not what is an approval. So I, I think that's a lot of what you heard in the conversation. Yes. One of the best questions came from Manal Abdumalik when she asked about how equipoise would be changed after the hopeful approval of one or more medications and how trials would need to be designed now. And you see Inventiva and others switching and sort of anticipating that shift in equipoise. And why it was a good regulatory question was because we need to go into any adcom that we have this year with an understanding with the FDA that what they require companies to do in phase four is feasible. That to have trials of five, seven year duration or with multiple biopsies or or other types of invasive activities is no longer feasible. It's not really feasible now, but it becomes completely infeasible um, and unrealistic to do to the point of endangering investment, endangering the potential success, uh, losing valid, good potential medications if we don't have those conversations now. So that was an excellent regulatory question. There are many fields that I don't know enough to ask a good question um, from. And it was demonstrated in that room that some people, perhaps, should not have gone to the mic or shouldn't have been fielding questions because they did not know enough about the subject to ask a good question. The fact that they did not know that they did not know is troubling to me because that means they will not ask for help or they will not reach out to those who do know what they're doing so that we can be successful in the assignment for this year, the year of our Lord, 2020. Yeah, or 57-something or 3,000-something, depending on which <laughs> Lord you happen to worship, right? You, you got a few different, I, I a few like, different I years. I accept that answer as well. How, how to describe the year we are in is globally a question of some complexity. Although in the States, we tend to have a singular view on this that even, at least the Jews, if you live here, you've accepted Fair it. enough. And when it comes to Chinese New Year, I want to learn what animal I'm supposed to honor as well. I still have to use up all of my Year of the Tiger stamps. Yeah. <laughs> I have, so I'm putting them on every bill I have this month so I can clear the way. Now, back to the question. Yes. One of the things that struck me yesterday, I've been—I love this turn of a phrase. Scott Freeman has for a while used the phrase "straitjacket of biopsy." You and I were talking about that in the pre, and you had kind of, a, I thought, an interesting comment about part of it being it's constraining and part of it being it's psychotic. But let me give you a way we haven't thought about that, or not enough people have thought about it. Going back to Manal's question about equipoise, if we need to shorten the trials, then we probably need to think a little differently about, or the agency even needs to think a little differently about what tests and metrics they're going to use for conditional approvals. Right. Right. You know, I, th- I think we've all agreed that a one level regression of fibrosis in a 12 to 18 month period is a really aggressive goal and leaves an awful lot of people in, you know, haven't progressed, haven't, prog- haven't regressed, therefore indeterminate if that's the definition you're using. That's not going to work with payers. Right. And if we can't do five to seven year trials anymore, so we can't wait to see what happens, then everyone's going to have to get aligned, I think, on how do we get to an answer we're more confident about sooner? Well, there's this new thing called real world evidence and, <laughs> and we should use it. I know, you know, and there's that amazing new singer, the one who's like a high school kid in Pennsylvania, Taylor Swift, right? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> I heard she's pretty good. And and so I believe that one of the, I mean, I took a lot of notes. There was so much really wonderful content throughout this really excellently organized meeting. One of the things that I noted was the age of different initiatives and databases of NASH CRN being 15 years, of some other real world evidence, you know, some other repositories being 12 years, how Litmus and Nimble are, are now advancing. Target NASH has a lot of natural history data. We have networks of claims and Anthem and, and others, research networks that are connected to, to PCORnet. And so I think that we can better mine the data that we already have in terms of, you know, natural history. Once we have drugs on the market, be tracking drug drug responses. But I think that to constrain the field by biopsy or other needs, when the needs of the patients are so great and are, are so urgent, does not bear scrutiny, does not survive scrutiny. Yeah, I think that's, that makes sense. I, I'll tell you one more thing to add to your data set. I don't know about Path AI because I haven't interviewed them on this, but one of the points that Dean Tai made in the interview that he, Yorn, and I did at the end of uh, episode two is that because Histo doesn't stay in their stuff, every slide they've ever collected is tagged to a patient and reusable or reanalyzable. So as they learn more about what they can do with their routines, they can back apply those to every patient they've ever gotten. And the more we know about the patient, the more you can back apply it to. So that's just another place to look for trying to amalgamate a data set that you wouldn't necessarily think of. I like your point on that. And I I agree with it. I I didn't tell you actually my personal highlight of the meeting, and I did wind up answering that question. My personal highlight of the meeting was actually adiponectin. And the reason I say that is, we've talked about this a little bit, is that one of the real challenges ahead of us is going to be no payer is going to put a patient on a drug for 18 months where our definition of success is regression of fibrosis and only 25% hit it. So we're going to, over time, need better definitions. We're also going to need a better, faster, smarter way to figure out who is not succeeding on this medication. Right. Right. So the idea that we've now got two different studies, the Inventiva data from ASLD and the data that was presented at this meeting that showed that two different drugs, adiponectin was predictive of non-response. And the Inventiva data, Stephen talked about here, that ALT was predictive of non-response, says to me, it might not be quite that hard, if we put our minds to it, to identify how to tell doctors and payers and patients, all three, this therapy is not getting to where we need it to. And then change therapy, add therapy, do something else. But know that we're not asking people to throw an awful lot of money and an awful lot of time as something that's not going to get them anything. That, that was actually my personal moment. And in a more serious mode, one of my favorite moments of the meeting was Dr. Clard Serlin, who's a radiologist, who asked, how can radiology do more? We often see fatty liver disease on slides. And the answer from the, from the podium to not use the word just, just a little fatty liver noticed. I thought that was a fantastic conversation. And I, I want us to, to take advantage and uh, not just a NASH tag, but at various meetings to invite more radiologists. I think that was a wonderful olive branch um, from that community. And, uh, you know, GLI has participated in this uh, Society of Interventional Radiology meetings in the past. And it, it's certainly something you want to do in the future. But I thought that type of specialty bridge was a wonderful thing to see since so many patients have been heartbroken by finding out that there was something on an image years ago, but nobody took responsibility. Nobody followed up on it. And there was an opportunity missed to start addressing their NAFLD or NASH at an earlier stage. So that was a highlight to me to have radiology wanting to step up to NASH, which is our theme of International NASH Day 2023. So I'm excited that radiology wants to step up to NASH. That's great. Listening to Claude Serlin, one of the thoughts I had is that radiology 
should become, if you will, should come to play the role that biopsy had been asked to play in the past. Mm -hmm. The most precise way we have to figure out, and frankly, as compared to biopsy, which was an awful lot of false precision, which is why I keep calling it the pyrite standard. But radiology isn't fool's gold. Used correctly, you know, hepatogram, you can do an awful lot with. Certain kinds, certain drugs, MRI, PDFF is a great measure. Others, maybe not as much for the drug, but there is the phenomenon that it measures well. MRE measures well, more precisely than biopsy does. And as you point out, radiology would like to engage. Absolutely. The other great moments for me on the patient and public health side were some of the really fantastic public health and prevalence presentations by Dr. Charlton and others that will really help us make this case as we're talking to policymakers and the public and introducing more people to you know understanding this disease, this patient population, and the scope of the problem. The challenges and the difficulties of getting accurate uh, surveillance data was shown. The sort of extrapolation or having to go from validated or verified data with codes to a very small percentage, I think 3%, that when we look at what an estimated sort of real number would be, or statements about five patients being in endocrinology to every one patient that's in hepatology, I think that those are really important parts of how we communicate message points and advocacy fuel as we bring this issue further. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episodes from NASHTAG, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com and we'll try to get you some support. We will be back next week. Our topic is in flux due to some commercial considerations, but whatever we do will be interesting, energized, and follow in the spirit of this amazing meeting. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.